0: Get you your Bible you can turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 verse 1. Today we would be coming to a close on our series in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, We've been picking up the pace a little bit here near the end, uh, but I think I'm actually going to do one more week. I'm going to go, even though the front of the bulletin will probably lie, I'll go into chapter 12 uh, for one more week. I know that will be shocking. But I wanted to start and look at the call of Abraham, which starts in the next chapter. But there's a big shift that happens after this chapter where we start seeing God focus on the family of Abraham. And really the rest of the story of Genesis and the rest of the story of the Bible is about how that family is blessed and then becomes a blessing to the nations. Uh, But today we're talking about the Tower of Babel. This last narrative that we have in this first section of Genesis... And so we're going to read this together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So, I've tried multiple times and been mostly unsuccessful. I mean, somewhat, uns- somewhat successful from time to time, but for the most part, I've bombed a lot at being a woodworker. Um, that is something I've always wanted to be, and I have many of the tools, and I've done a few projects, like I said, a few of them successful, but I've never really reached the status of a, of a hobby woodworker yet. And a few years ago, I was building a table, I should say I was attempting to build a table, Uh, for our dining room. I thought, wouldn't it be awesome to uh, build my own dining room table? And so that was my intention. I wanted to build something nice for us, and so I went online, I found a good design, I downloaded it, I um, I got the plans, I began to work on it with every intention of creating this um, nice dining room table. But then as Circumstances changed, and as uh, intentions changed over time, I realized that that is not exactly what it was I was building. For instance, when I went to the lumber store to buy lumber, I realized to have a nice dining table, uh, I really should have some nice woods for this dining room table. And then I looked at the price tag of the woods, and that, that would normally be a very fine dining table. And I thought, well, you know, framing lumber is okay right? <laughs> uh, it will be a quote-unquote rustic look. Um, so that was the first choice. Then I started actually working on it. Started cutting the wood. You know, it's better to cut a, wood, a piece of wood too long than too short, if you didn't know. But I remember one time I cut one just barely too short and so it didn't quite line up with the other pieces that were supposed to be the same length. And I thought, well, it was my last piece of wood. Am I going to go back to the store and then get another piece of wood to make sure that it's absolutely perfect well this is handmade furniture the the imperfections of it are what make it unique right that's the story that began to go through my mind anyway I finished it and kind of checked its sturdiness and it had a little bit of wobble to it just a little bit but you know I realized I probably should add more bracing to this. should add, I should make this heavier built because it's it's just too loose but if I do that, then it's going to look very much tacked on and not going to look very good. And so I decided to leave it as it was. At various points along that way, as I was making those little micro decisions, little movements away from the intention that I started out with, I had to ask myself the question what is it that I'm exactly building here? Because I had the design in mind, and I had the picture in front of me, but then as I made little decisions towards that, my intention started to change, and I started to build something different than what my intention was. My intention was to build a fine dining room table, but I did not end up building, as you might have guessed, a fine dining room table. I ended up building a fine garage workbench, which is the purpose that it serves today in my shed. It holds tools and various things, and it does that pretty well. However, it was different than what the original intention was. When we come to the story of the Tower of Babel, and this last kind of section before we move into Abraham and the story that God's going to tell through this, we see the same thing. There is a design here to build something there is a design to make something great and yet the intention is off the intention is not in alignment with what God's purposes are and so they were supposed to ask themselves at various points along the way what is this that we're actually doing We're building something here, but does it actually do what we want it to do? And does it look the way that God wants it to look? And the fact is that it is not of God's design. This is, in fact, a recognition that they are building a life outside of God's design. And we see that even in the first two verses. Read those with me again. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words... And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Now there are two hints in those first two verses that this is a story about moving away from the design of God. And the first one is this, that they're moving in from the east. And if we were reading this passage with our uh, biblical glasses on through the lens of the way that the scripture talks in a metaphorical and literary sense, we know that the east is a bad thing. East is where they went out of the Garden of Eden. East from Eden is where Adam and Eve had to go. East is where Cain goes when God puts the mark on him after he kills Abel. East is where later Lot, the son of Abraham, who is not uh, following God, goes away from Abraham east. East is where, even farther down the road, Jacob will leave after deceiving his father to go be with his relatives east, further and further and further away from the garden, away from the presence of God. And so these people are coming from the east to settle. They're coming from this position away from God to settle it and that's the other thing that they do is that it's they settled there in the land in the plain of shinar. And settling is the other reason why we know that this is a story about building a life outside of God's purposes because remember the purpose that God has given his people. Twice now he has said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, spread out, disperse over it. He told that to Adam and Eve in the garden. And then And then after the flood, he comes to Noah and he says the exact same thing. And this is right after the flood. says, go and fill the earth. Spread out. I want the glory of my name to be over all the earth. And yet, what they find is that they want to settle and build a life in one place. Outside of the design and intent of God. I want to ask us the personal question today this how do we make sure that we're not building a life outside of God's design we believe that God has an intention for us a plan for us a life for us and we have to ask ourselves at various points along the way am I building a life that is in line with that design or is it off how do we know well, we have to watch and look at our desires and our intentions, because I believe that desires are the building blocks of, the, of life. What does James say? Why do you have these fights among you? Is it not because you have these worrying desires within you? You want lots of different things, and we have to watch our desires and see. Every time we have a desire, it's like a building block. It's building towards something. Is it building into the design that God has for us? In particular, there are three desires that build a life away from God. The desire for rule, the desire for recognition, and the desire for results. And they engage in all three of these things, and they build a life that is outside of God's design. First, then, let's look at this. They have the desire for rule, to be supreme beings, to have authority over their lives, to have sovereignty. They want to be like God. The oldest wrong desire in the book because that is exactly what Adam and Eve wanted, to be like God. And the same is true here, that they could rule. We see it in verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. They said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly.'" And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now that's very significant. We know... understanding of the world is the heavens and the earth the heavens being the domain of God and the earth being the domain of mankind that God gives us that authority that control over this domain but they want to build a tower into the heavens in other words they want to go into the domain of God they want a stairway to heaven they want control And how they think that they will achieve this is through their own frenzied activity. Twice in the verses I just read, it says, come, let us do this. Come, let us do this. And that's a very energetic phrase. I mean, another translation would be, let's get to it. Let's get moving. We have to do this. We have a lot to accomplish. And so they believe brick by brick, they're building more and more control and dominion in their lives. How does the passage address this building block of desire? Well, it paints it as ridiculous. As humorous. As tragically ironic. It's exactly what it does. We have a bit of humor and irony from God himself and from Moses who wrote this story. From God himself, we see it in verse... 5 and verse 7, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Verse 7, come let us go down there and confuse their language. The Lord says I got to come down to see this. (laughs) This tall tower right? That's supposed to reach into the heavens. I can't quite see what's going on down there not quite reaching his throne room metaphorically speaking of course we don't believe that God is in the sky and that he actually can't see this what he's doing is he's saying this is how weak that effort is I can't even see what's going on there let's go down and check it out and then he mocks them with their own words he says the same phrase that they say come let us make bricks come let us build something he says come let's go down and I better get down there. I better get to it. Oh, no. They're building a tower to me. What am I going to do? And so that frenzied phrase he uses again, but he has to go a long way down in order to see it. And so it is true that God is mocking them here. Does God do that? He absolutely does this. He holds in derision. He laughs at those who believe That they can reach the heavens. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings on the earth set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed saying. Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision for all of our frenzied activity, for all of our belief that we can control our lives, that we can reach the heavens. It's actually ridiculous. There's a little bit of mockery also from Moses who wrote this. A little extra commentary in verse 3 where he says, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. That's a quote that he's saying was said. But then he adds this, And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, that wasn't part of the story. They didn't say to themselves, we have brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. That's Moses, many centuries later, writing this story to his audience, the Israelite community outside of Egypt, and he's telling them this is what they had to build with. The reason why is because later these same materials, brick and bitumen, are used in the construction of uh, Babylonian temples and also Mesopotamian ziggurats These, uh, if you remember from your freshman year of college ziggurats were built in Mesopotamia some of the oldest history that we have these old towers that reached up to heaven and he's saying that's the same stuff that they're building out of but Israel did not work with those materials Israel worked with stone and mortar So he's translating it to his audience and he's saying, look, I know we use stone and we use mortar, but they had brick and bitumen. And that is actually a laughable thing because those are weaker materials. There's no way that they're going to build a tower tall enough to reach the heavens out of bitumen and brick. These things that they bake, it won't support itself. And so the weakness of the materials reflects the weakness of the human attempt to rise to God. They had a desire for rule. They tried to build their life on that. They also had, secondly, a desire for recognition. Second part of verse 4. Build a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's make a name for ourselves. Interestingly, they they link it directly in opposition to God's command. They say, if we spread out over the whole earth, if we're dispersed, we're not going to be able to make a name for ourselves. But that is exactly what God had commanded. Be anonymous. Go spread out and make my name great over the face of the earth. And yet, here they are trying to be famous. Famous this principle we understand, it's still true, right? If you want to become a famous musician, you can't live in Gary, Indiana, okay? Sorry, it's just the first example I thought of. Sorry if you're from Gary, but now you may be from Gary, right, and become a famous musician, but it's very, very, very unlikely that you are going to be a famous musician in Gary, Indiana, okay? What's, if you've got some talent, if you've got some skill, what's the what, what do you do? You move to Nashville. You move to LA. You move to New York. You go somewhere where there's a concentration so you can make a name for yourself. And that's not wrong because God may be calling you to do that. He may be calling you to do that, but that's not what he called them to do. What he called them to do was to spread out over the whole earth and build glory to his name and not make a name for themselves. But that that anonymity was too much for them. They didn't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. If we are dispersed, there's no way that we can kind of engage in this competition. This is true of us as well. Well, Alan Richardson says this the hatred of anonymity drives men to hero feats of valor or long hours of drudgery. I just think that is so true. Not all of us want to be famous in the same way. Not all of us want to be heroic, but many of us have an idea that we'd like to build a name for ourselves, and whether it's through something heroic or something very, you know, much like drudgery, something like I've got to build towards and, and, and get this recognition. Being famous, of course, is not always wrong. Abraham, who we meet in the next chapter, is going to have a great reputation. The difference is, is that God gives it to him. God says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. But the pursuit of a name is at least very dangerous, if not sinful. Again, just like in the case of their attempt at rule, we have tragic humor, and irony accompanying this. Think about it. Who are these people? Who built the Tower of Babel? I don't know. Do you know? Who was their foreman? Who was the king? Who was the great, mighty man or woman who gathered all these? We don't know. Is it because the Bible doesn't give us names? No. The whole previous chapter is all names, The sons of Noah, his descendants. Guess what? After this first nine verses, it's all names. The sons of Shem. This passage alone in these, around this whole section, is completely anonymous. They don't obtain what they seek in search of a name they find themselves eternally anonymous. And this is just true of all of us over time. No matter how significant each one of us is and our contribution is, each one of us eventually is dispersed into obscurity. There was a famous sonnet written by uh, Percy Shelley. It was actually, his wife was Mary Shelley, you might know her, she wrote the book Frankenstein. Um, but this is the 1800s in uh, England. And he wrote, he's most famous for his poem, or his sonnet, Ozymandias. It's really the only work that people talk about when it comes to Percy Shelley. And Ozymandias was a was a poem about, that's the Greek name for Ramses II, the Pharaoh. And uh, Percy Shelley is... He was in England. Had the, there's an exhibit came for Ramses II, also called Ozymandias. And there was a few remnants left of, of his reign in Egypt. And it came to a museum near him. And he was inspired to write the poem. And in the, in the sonnet, he imagines that a tablet is discovered from this powerful Pharaoh, Ramses II. And he writes this poem uh, about what the tablet says. Here's just a little section of it. He imagines this. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. He imagines a tablet saying, look on my works and despair, Anyone who comes here, but then by the wearing away of time, there nothing remains around it. Only the inscription. Nothing is there except sand that stretches far away. The name Ozymandias no longer causes despair. Because no name, no matter how significant it is, lasts in that way. And therefore is not a building block on which you want to build your life. It actually causes you to build something that is not helpful or good or God's according to God's design. the desire for, re- for rule, the desire for recognition, thirdly, this morning, they had a desire for results. They wanted to build this, in other words, to prove that they could, to have the power of accomplishment. And we see this reflected in verse 6 when the Lord reflects on what they may be thinking. He says, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Maybe that's a confusing verse to you. Kind of sounds like God's worried about competition, doesn't it? If I I let them build this, then nothing will be impossible for them. Is he worried about rivalry? No. That's not actually what it means. What he is doing is putting words in their own mouths. He's not worried that nothing will actually be impossible for them. He's worried that they might think nothing is impossible for us. He's not worried about their rivalry. He's worried about their delusion. They think that if they build a tower to the heavens, that they can do anything. They can have any result that they want. Isn't that part sometimes of our desires? 1986 there was a uh, article in the Arizona Republic here on Gordon Hall, maybe that name is familiar to some of you, he was a real estate developer tycoon here in the area, in Paradise Valley and other surrounding areas, and the title of the article in 1986 was this Behold, Gordon Hall's millions shall make him a god. His goal was to, worth, to be worth hundred million by the time he was 33, a goal that he did achieve By 38, he wanted to be a billionaire. He didn't achieve that, and he wanted to be the first trillionaire before he died. One of his goals, not coincidentally, was to build the biggest tower in Phoenix. I mean, it's the oldest trick in the book, right? I want to build an office tower that is bigger than any other tower in Phoenix. He had this desire. This is what he says in the article about becoming a God. As man is, this is him quoting, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. If you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a God. And I believe it. That is why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a God. My God in heaven creates worlds and universes. I believe I can do anything too. Fast forward to 2015. The same journalist who wrote the one in 1986 wrote another article and the title of this article is Gordon Hall, The Would-be God Becomes a Convict. Through a series of tax scams, Ponzi schemes, and many other things, he's now in prison. See, the belief that I can have any result that I just set my mind to is a delusion. He was not capable of building the tower. Any tower that re- had the exact results that he wanted out of life. And so he warped the building of his life. Now we got to ask ourselves some of these same questions. What am I building here with my life? What am I Building, How much of my energy goes into laying the building blocks of desires that build something that is outside of the life of God? Do we have a desire for rule? And by that, most of us don't mean that we have dominion over other people and our kings or queens, we mean, can I have some sense of control? Can I have some sovereignty in my life? Maybe I can achieve that. We all have a desire to be recognized, that a name or a position or a status would be bestowed on us and there would be a moment of reckoning where everyone sees that this is true. I have a name. Maybe it's a name in the whole world, probably not. Maybe you just want to be the biggest fish in whatever pond you're in and you kind of define the pond so that you can be the biggest fish. We all do this. Perhaps it's a desire for a result, for an accomplishment, to see something tangible, to unlock a certain income level, to build something big, recognizable, significant, however we might define those things. What are we building? The answer is, if it's based on anything other than the life that God has given us in these first 11 chapters, the creation of the world, who he made us to be, that design, if it's anything other than that, it will be incomplete. That will be the result of it. That is the result of the tower. Look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. What we have is an incomplete monument. And that is the end of all of our boasting. If we build a life with the building blocks of our own rule and our own recognition and our own results and whatever else we might do to think of as success, our lives will be incomplete monuments. they will be more a testament to how unfinished we are than by what we accomplished. Be straight with you. I believe that this passage teaches us that without God, without acknowledging His design and His purposes in our lives, there is no way that your life ends up anything different than tragic irony. It will be something that will be a testament to something unfinished. Because you are not able to finish it. It will never be enough. It will never reach the heavens. The name will never be recognizable enough. And the results will never be satisfying enough. It just won't happen. Is there an alternative? Thankfully, yes. And to see the alternative, we need to look at the very center of this passage. The very middle. And I mean that very precisely. There is a middle to this passage. It's another perfect Genesis story. It is written in a format that has a center, and then there are mirror images that go off in either direction. There's a structure to this passage. If you want the name of it, it's called a chiasm. They're all over the Bible. There's the centerpiece and then a mirror image that goes out from the middle. And the center is in verse 5, the first words and the Lord came down. The Lord came down. Just to show you what I mean about the structure, right after that it says, to see the city and the tower. Look up in verse 4. They build a city and a tower. Same phrase. You see how on either side of the middle there's something going on there and that extends all the way through the passage. It's a finely crafted story. The center shows us What the heartbeat of the passage is, the Lord comes down. Meaning what? He is in control of this situation. It is his will that will be accomplished. He does what he wants to do. And what he does is he confuses them and he confuses their language. And then he sends them out on the mission that he always wanted them to do. Because of the confusion of their language, they must then disperse. Which is what God wanted them to do in the first place. This is, in other words, the center of this story. And in some ways, the center of all the scripture that God has come down. That he interacts with this earth. That he has purposes. And he has come down in the person of Jesus Christ. At the center point, not just of this story, but this whole story. Is him coming down. Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He confuses people and then he sends them out on mission. People can't understand him. He comes to confuse the leaders and to confuse those who don't want to follow him. And yet, for those that do, he sends them out on the mission. He gives them this great commission to go to the nations, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that same story that Jesus is at the center of Scripture then is repeated again very significantly at the next great moment of redemptive history, which is called Pentecost. Something we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks. And at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And this is not something brand new, this is something prophesied, Zechariah chapter 3. That the Spirit will pour out and the nations will hear in their own tongues. And when the Spirit is poured out, that's exactly what happens. There are tongues, there are languages, but it's no longer primarily about confusion. In fact, in that Acts chapter 2 passage, the tongues that are spoken gets the ear, the attention of devout men and women around and they hear in their own language the story of the gospel. And then they disperse over the whole earth, and they bring glory to God's name. Taking this message, the fact that Jesus has come down, spreads throughout the whole earth. And so the confusion of language is confusing to those who are there, and they hear it, and they think, are these people drunk? But for everybody who heard it in their own language, it is not a tongue of confusion, it is a tongue of the gospel to hear what Jesus has done and then to go out with that clarity into mission. How do we make sure that our lives are built rightly? Well first they have to be built on the chief cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of the church and our lives. He has come down. He has revealed himself. There is no properly built life without him at the center. And so by faith, we put our faith in Christ. We are established to be built rightly. And then... What begins to happen is that we are changed and instead of a desire for rule we increasingly we have a desire to understand what God is doing in the world to submit to him to obey his rule to submit to his design to give our lives to following him instead of building a name for ourselves increasingly we want to glorify the name of God we want him to be made famous we want people to see him and know him and, and be changed by Him. And instead of results, that treadmill of how much can I accomplish, we increasingly trust and rest in what God has accomplished on our behalf. And we see that our efforts are only extra. It's only that God has enabled us to have some good works and we should pursue those good works, but they are not the basis. They are not the foundation of our lives. Our life is built, rather, on the foundation of Christ. And if it's built in that way, then it is built properly. Let's pray.